0: welcome to kibby Greg, how's it going?
1: A, a, a very busy in free speech world at the moment. Yeah,
0: it's it's a crazy
1: world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, pretty, pretty much since the anti-Semitism hearings last week, um, you know everybody's calling us. I did the Bill Maher show on Friday. Um, it was just a coincidence that I was on this week, and man, it's just blown up everywhere. Yeah,
0: well, it's it's interesting because uh, I think it was last week we ran a conversation I had with Thomas Massey. Uh huh. And Thomas, as you know. Probably know is is a is a fairly non-interventionist Ron Paul kind of Republican, uh-huh. and he was um, unfortunately for him perhaps politically he was one of the few members of Congress to vote against some symbolic resolution calling for the defunding of, of these these elite campuses that are allowing mm-hmm. anti-Semitism on campus. Uh-huh. Um, because he his view, and I wonder. Well, we'll start here because I think it's I think it's an interesting subject. His view was that if you weaponize the government to pull its funding yeah. from something, some institution, because the government funds pretty much everything. Yeah, they're involved in everything. And if uh, some uh, house or some camp, campaign committee or or some committee of Congress decides, I don't like what you're letting happen on your campus. I'm going to pull your funding. Yeah. And it in his point was if you do that, you're opening the door to incredible censorship yeah. from government, bullying and you know, the power of the purse is everything. And and you know, some some people were like, I thought you were a libertarian and you would take any advantage to defund people but but I agreed with him that this, this seemed like a, a very dangerous step down the road towards the government deciding what you're allowed to say on campus.
1: Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. It, the, the The situation with the uh, two, like the three university presidents is, is of course a little bit difficult for the fact that they two of them at least, are terrible uh, for free speech. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard, like I can't get upset about the uh, McGill at University of Pennsylvania stepping down because right before she stepped down, first of all, Penn's second to last on the campus free speech rating, uh, that FIRE does. Um, You know, 248 schools, it was 247. The only school that beat Penn, by the way, was Claudine Gay's, Harvard's, uh, was the only school that actually uh, beat uh, uh, Penn. And meanwhile, right before she decided to uh, give up, she had actually said, um, after, you know, recovering from her terrible performance uh, during the hearings, that um, she uh, the, 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 that she was going to delink uh, the, the pen policies from constitutional standards, which is one of the craziest things I've heard a university president say, let alone at an elite university. Yeah. So we're like, that's that's terrible. So it's int- it's an interesting moment because if what uh, gets taken out of those hearings is that universities aren't clamping down enough on. Political opinion on on pure speech, then this could be a real disaster for speech. Some of the people, though, that were clamoring for McGill to step down pointed out her terrible record on free speech and not standing up for Amy Wax. Also pointed out the fact that a lot of the speech, a lot of the speech that people are pointing to, is threats, intimidation, discriminatory harassment, which is also true, by the way. So it's tough, because I I think that, uh, at least from hearing from what some of the um, donors claim to want in the next person, they want things that actually could potentially be a better environment for speech, but that remains to be seen. When it comes to Claudine Gay at Harvard, I mean, they really earned their last place on the FIRE ranking. Um, But she's new, and she's said some good things about free speech so far, Um, and if she's forced to step down, then the worry is, of course, that the message to everyone else is going to be clamped down on, on speech more. Then, however, Bill Ackman wrote a letter that was, unfortunately, he's a major donor, kind of persuasive on her not being competent for her job and also not clamping down on things um, that involved, like disruption of campus, involved things that aren't also protected. So it's, it's one of these moments where it could kind of go either either way. Um, I do think that universities need to be uh, massively less bureaucratized, and that's something that I think the government, if it is going to tie conditions to anything, they should be basically saying, "No, but you can't keep growing your administrator and keep on increasing the cost per student of everything you do." But if it's used to to require schools to clamp down on free speech, then that's a major issue, and we will take them to court.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm sort of like conflicted watching her resign as well because. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, she's foisted on her own petard, and um, she she kind of earned this dilemma that she faced in that hearing where they've they've gone out of their way, all of these university presidents, and you you can list them, yeah, by name, to get involved in all sorts of controversial opinionating that they they really what's that's not their job. The job is to create an environment where students feel free and safe to speak up, yeah. Um, and they've utterly failed at that job. So on that, in that sense, she, she got what she had coming to her.
1: Yeah. But it, in the d- other d- sense it does feel a little bit like just desserts because they've showed such incredible double standards on this stuff. Yeah. And when they show up in front of Congress, trying to talk a good game on freedom of speech, nobody believed them. And yeah. it had a little bit of a boy who cried wolf kind of quality to it. But on the other hand,
0: yeah, but on, you know, on the other hand, and it's, I, I feel like a lot of conservatives and Republicans are now saying uh, speech codes hold my beer <laughs> yeah exactly um, if we're gonna do this uh, we're gonna do it my way and I think I think that's a very dangerous uh, spiral that that means we're gonna we're gonna be banning all the speech right the, yeah. the speech that the left hates and the speech that the right hates and it's it's also wildly ambiguous and open-ended that pretty much any word you would say might potentially violate the rules.
1: Yeah, no, it was kind of funny seeing reactions to Canceling of the American Mind, my, my, my new book with Ricky Schlopp, in some conservative circles being well, there are three chapters on cancel culture from the right. It's like because that's a real thing, guys. <laughs> like, and we're going to call it out. We're yeah. an nonpartisan shop. That, that that's what we do. Um, I don't pretend. I don't engage in in, in silly, mindless bipart, like um, both siderism. Yeah, the problems worse on the left on campus for sure. There's super majorities, you know, both of professors and administrators are on the left. But the idea that there's no problem on the right just seems like putting your fingers in your ears.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, I mean, I, I'm pretty explicitly libertarian, particularly when it comes to free speech issues, so I, I see absolutely, I see problems on both sides. Well, and the
1: libertarians have been our one, like, reliable ally throughout our entire existence. Like, li- li- you know, good libertarians actually get free speech it actually doesn't work if it doesn't apply to everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish the ACLU still got that, but...
1: Well, the ACLU did, did just back a lawsuit um, on defending the free speech rights of the NRA. Now, of course, in the following tweet, they've sort of through the NRA under the bus as being, you know, an odious organization, which is something that you know, Fire doesn't, you know, defend people and then tell everyone how horrible they are because that's a slippery slope. Right. But still, they're on the right side, uh, the right side of that NRA case.
0: So, for people that don't know, we sort of jumped into this, yeah. but uh, give us a sense for for what Fire does because you guys are not new to this fight. You've, you've been leaders on this for for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, give us. Give us the
1: the background. Uh, So, FIRE was founded in 1999, which means next year is our 25th anniversary. Um, And none of us want to have a gala because we find those exhausting. (laughs) We we just had one. And we used to be the foundation for individual rights in education. And I joined about a, a year and a half into FIRE to become the first legal director. And I became president in 2005, 2006. Um, and uh, but the founders of Fire are actually two libertarians, um, Alan Charles Coors, um, who's uh, the, one of the great experts of the Enlightenment, one of the great experts of, of Voltaire, former University of Pennsylvania professor himself, um, and he's more of a conservative-leaning libertarian. Whereas my mentor, Harvey Silverglade, um, is a, a ACLU guy, um, a criminal defense lawyer, and a more left-leaning libertarian. And having that legacy at FIRE has been really important to us because we try to be this weird nonprofit where people who vote, you know, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, all work together and don't agree on other things, um, but absolutely agree on freedom of speech.
0: At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. Yeah, and you're, uh, both of your books, A Coddling of the American Mind uh, with Jonathan Haidt Mm-hmm. and your new book, The Canceling of the American Mind, with Ricky Schlotz? Uh, Ricky Schlott, yeah, she's tw- a okay,
1: okay. 23-year-old genius who actually uh, worked for Reason, um, a good libertarian. She considers himself, herself libertarian. And I started working her- with her when she was 20. And I remember telling, I'm sure, mutual friend, Jonathan Rausch, um, that I was writing a book with a 20-year-old, and he definitely had this kind of like, oh, what are you thinking, Greg? Like, that seems crazy. And I'm like, no, no, you've got a meter." And so far, like, uh, you know, she's been doing the book tour with me, and everyone's like, oh, I get it. Because she is crazy smart, but also, like, we, we complement each other perfectly, because as you can probably tell by the way I'm talking right now, I'm a little bit of an overwriter. <laughs> you know, I get excited about something, and suddenly it's 5,000 words. And finding someone who can look at it, understand it, and be like, okay, Greg, here's the 500 words you were actually trying to say, uh, yeah. helps me out greatly.
0: And, but she's also kind of boots on the ground because she, she yeah, lived totally. it yep. um, and um, old guys like us, I mean, we observe it from the outside, but our, our university experience was very different.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, No, I, I I always pick on height a little bit here because, you know, I, um, I'm Gen X. He says he's Gen X, um, <laughs> he's a little closer, closer to Boomer, he's on the cusp. Um, but we also wrote a book, Coddling the American Mind. Uh, that is very much about uh, challenges faced by Gen Z and particularly Gen Z young women. So, having an opportunity to write a book with an absolutely brilliant Gen Zer um, who uh, has seen the stuff with her own eyes and did actually first contact me and Height to tell us like how much she thought Coddling the American Mind nailed it, I was like, oh, there's a great opportunity to do a follow up of Coddling the American Mind with someone from Gen Z to talk about all these challenges. But as we were getting ready to write that book, we kind of couldn't believe that there were still ideologues out there saying cancel culture isn't real. It's a right-wing hoax. It's only an invention of Fox News. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, uh, and, and mission number one of, college, of canceling of the American mind is to point out the data and, uh, and the examples and the historical comparisons to make an argument that not only is cancel culture real, it's on a historic scale that they're going to be studying in 100 years
0: you know we mentioned the ACLU and and I'm old enough to remember when the ACLU was a reliable ally on free speech issues and you you talked about the the position of fire wanting to work with right left center mm-hmm. across the ideological spectrum and i always thought that 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 speech was one of those sort of transpartisan issues where yeah. we would all anyone that's philosophically minded at all and, and appreciative of the Bill of Rights would just like that's that's the hill we die on, yeah. and that disappeared at some point. And you 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 and Heights document the sort of the philosophical basis of that yeah. evolution. You call it safetyism.
1: Yeah. In in and, and I always attribute that to uh, Pamela Pretzky who who was our um, uh, lead researcher for coddling the American mind. She was the one who coined it. I had a much clumsier term called pseudo safety, which was not nearly as catchy. Um, And so safetyism is the idea of making any additional amount of physical safety, or even worse, mental safety, which basically means comfort, um, uh, to be a sacred value, that essentially any even the tiniest uh, increase in, in feelings of safety, no matter what the cost in terms of civil liberties or free speech um, is worth it. And it, and we, we refer to it as a sacred value in the sense that there's no trade-offs, that essentially there's not supposed to, that ultimately is the greatest good to be as safe both psychologically and physically as possible. Now, this leads to all sorts of distortions. It's not a good way to look at the world if you want to thrive in the world, um, we think that it's it's part of the mentality that is the reason why you see the threats to free speech and academic freedom on campus also being tied to a massive um, mental health crisis among young people as well. And we saw this coming back in 2014, when we started noticing the clamping down of, of, on free speech from this uh, new generation, Gen Z, that was just hitting campus, we said, wow these kind of attitudes are going to make them anxious and depressed as well and unfortunately those numbers got were were decidedly worse than we ever saw but meanwhile since october 7th um a lot of people are also calling bs on this because the same students um, and the same administrators and be clear in many cases it's really like the administrators are the ones making this problem bad Uh, like if they were fighting back against the students and saying you can't cancel these professors or your fellow students Um, that would be commendable, and that would be what they're supposed to be doing. Instead, in many cases, they're actually encouraging them, uh, you know, leading the charge, in some cases, helping with the shout downs, as we saw at my alma mater. Uh, Stanford, But meanwhile, since, you know, uh, campuses where people are shouting, you know, intifada um, and, you know, actually sometimes crossing the line into actual threats and harassment, it's hard to believe they're really sincere in believing that everybody's entitled to the the most exquisite psychological comfort. Right. The two don't go together at all.
0: (laughs) When did, like, the the shout-downs, because I I was thinking about this, um, reading some of your stuff this morning. Um, way back when I, I'm an economist by training, and mm. way back in graduate school, we were studying a lot of the leftist literature on community organizing, yeah. and you know how to sort of triangulate a town hall meeting. And I, I would eventually, I would eventually become a Tea Party organizer. Yeah, uh, very much influenced by this idea that if you want to amplify your opinions and and give give a sense that, that you're bigger than you are. There's, there's a logic that we borrowed from the left about how to, how to dominate a town hall meeting. Uh-huh. Be the first person with a smart question, step up to the microphone, and pretty soon people in the audience that, that weren't really thinking about it the same way you were, like, yeah, I, that makes sense. And not a, I, I don't think in any way a cynical or inappropriate way to do civil discourse, but at some point, it became. I'm not going to let you speak. Yeah. And I'm going to shout you down. And I'm even going to rip the microphone from the podium. And, yeah. And just it became violent and hostile. Um, is is that because we, the broad civil libertarian, we yeah. um, were actually winning in a more radically democratic environment? So they had to. They had to switch tactics. What, when did this happen?
1: You know, my Substack is called the Eternally Radical Idea because I believe that situation normal for human history, just like when people point out, you know, poverty is the norm, it's wealth you have to explain in libertarian circles, censorship is the norm and it's free speech you have to explain. And it takes a lot of serious, societal values, shared ones, norms, uh, practices to maintain and sustain freedom of speech. And, you know, I talk about this in Canceling of the American Mind, as uh, to not make it too complicated, as things that were actually very nicely reflected in idioms that the both of us grew up with. But, uh, by the way, my co-author, Ricky, had basically never heard things like everyone's entitled to their opinion, to each their own, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. All of these things, those are wonderful small-D Democrats norms, even for that matter, sticks and stones. Right, You know, th- these are all ways that you actually express, you know, some amount of, of, of humility. But there have always been forces trying to take over, uh, tr- trying to, you know, shout people down to um, you know, uh, you uh, cross the line into violence and intimidation in order to have their way. I feel very lucky that I grew up in you know the 1980s and 90s when the free speech law was stronger and uh, was strong and getting stronger. But also free speech culture. There was there was a very strong norm that like listen, it's a free country, dude. Like yeah. like, like you, you want to be a offensive comedian, I gotta listen to you, but that's none of my business. Yeah. Like I, again, like another more more idioms I didn't even realize. Um, the uh, and unfortunately on campus, um, this was very this was both. Uh, um, eroded by some natural sort of forces, like group polarization, where essentially if you don't have enough political, if you're uh, you're too politically homogenous, there's a tendency to become ever more so. Um, As, you know, I talk about this in the uh, instance of anti-Semitism laws in France and how anti-Semitism has actually gotten worse since those laws were passed. And I always make the points like, well, you told all the anti-Semites that they could only talk to other anti-Semites. What did you think was going to happen? Um, and so on campuses, when you just have a, you know, a pretty left environment, and the, um, it just tends to get more and more so over time. So there's, there's an organic aspect to how intolerance happens. Um, And I talk about also um, problems of comfort in my short book, Freedom From Speech, that essentially, yes, I agree with Steve Pinker that an awful lot of things are getting better, but there's a category of things that will get worse precisely because other things get better. And particularly if you grow up in an environment where you can expect comfort, norms like difficult norms like freedom of speech and discourse and all this kind of stuff, um, uh, there's greater hostility to them because they require uh, discomfort. But not to let uh, uh, campuses entirely off the hook, though. We also talk about the anti-free speech movement, um, which we designate as beginning the year after the Berkeley free speech movement, and spearheaded initially by Herbert Marcuse, famous guru of the left, you know, who wrote Repressive Tolerance, making, in my opinion, an incredibly primitive argument um, that and a very old argument. Just just the title itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Repressive tolerance. Yeah, exactly. That essentially there's good people um, like me um, and people on the left, um, and and if we want to have a truly fair and uh, equal society, then of course we have to repress the regressive so-called conservatives and right. I kind of forgot how explicit it was just. Go after the right, and by the way, everyone else is on the right, and it's like, and it gets treated like this is some kind of intelligent analysis. and I'm like, no, it's just, it's just old-fashioned authoritarianism. Yeah. like, this is this is as old as time, and unfortunately, that mentality got picked up by a lot of thinkers on campuses, um, and uh, and it was. I remember talking to Richard Delgado, one of the founders of. I debated him back in uh, Williams in 2003. It was it was very intentional. We wanted to change the political valence of free speech on the left, uh, um, so that it's no. Longer longer one of the sacred norms of people on the left, and they've largely succeeded,
0: unfortunately. So I've been, I've been obsessed with an old book by Frederick Hayek called The Counter-Revolution in Science.
1: I don't know this one. And I'm, I'm going to mash this. Oh, I shouldn't have tell your audience up. that, I'm sorry. No, it's well, it's, yeah.
0: it's perhaps his most obscure book and in a lot of ways um, difficult to read. But it's it's primarily a critique of scientism. This is where he, he took on some of the, the founding thinkers of socialist thought because they, they wanted to replace the the chaos of of a free society with uh, a scientific hierarchy where really smart people would be in charge and they they would replace um, all of these um, civil libertarian norms with with planning.
1: What 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 could go wrong? Yeah, what could go wrong?
0: <laughs> so I'm thinking in the uh, and I I went back and reread this book at the beginning of the lockdowns because one of the one of the guys that he picked so much on is uh, a guy named St. Simone. Mm-hmm. And St. Simone had this wacky idea that you would create a temple to Sir Isaac Newton and you would seat these scientists in this temple and they would reorganize society in a very rational way. So I'm, I'm gonna combine your notion of safetyism with, with scientism because mm-hmm. the, you know uh, Mar- Marcuse and all of those guys very much presented this as a science. It wasn't an so did, opinion. Surely, so did Marx. Yeah, and it, it was like it was the, the the march through history. This is this is how it's going to happen, um, and that that pseudo scientific yeah. notion of this very much um, it's hard to argue with because you know when when people scream as they did over the last three or four years, uh, trust the science. Ugh. It's like that that's just that's a debate-ending conversation. And of course, real science of course, is an endless a, a, debate. And, a, and
1: an oxymoron yeah, uh, yeah. at the same time. Um, the, the, yeah, the, the claim of uh, you know, Marx, that he was creating sort of a, a scientific philosophy, was of course incredibly anti-scientifically arrogant, um, the epistemic ar- arrogance to its core. And it does kind of still continue to blow me away that this this was still, it's just a rhetorical device. And it was taken seriously by people as as, um, as clear-minded as uh, Karl Popper, so much so that he actually had to eventually, you know, um, question it and say, like, is this really science? And that's one of the things that led him to trying to figure out what some of the aspects of, of, of science actually really is. But the, but how could anybody ever took this seriously? It's just, it's just a rhetorical assertion based on something that, and I mean, historicism? Give me a break. I mean, like, the the, the idea that, that there is some kind of predictable arc in history, that's that's mysticism.
0: Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty, so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's let's take it. I know you have a chapter in your new book about about the lockdowns and the, and the yeah. speech police during lockdowns. Yeah. It strikes me that that this safetyism you were talking about, you wanting people to be physically secure and mentally secure at all times, both yeah. of which are Impossibilities and perhaps a dystopian nightmare. Yeah, not even if desirable we ever, to if we with. ever achieved it. Um, but that—that that was sort of turbocharged by the lockdowns. We—we we must have zero COVID. We must keep everybody safe. Um, and if you question any of the scientists or telling you this is how we do those things, you're—you're you're a monster. You yeah. want to kill grandma and you know a lot of these people I, I just got back from Stanford where I was interviewing Jay Bhattacharya oh, great. and Scott Atlas and guys that and I know you were just at Stanford yeah at Hoover and and these guys with incredibly impressive resumes were not allowed to speak yeah and it, it must come from this this philosophy of safetyism that somehow we pulled that off because I would have I would have thought 10 20 years ago that it would have been impossible for demagogues to shut down the scientific conversation yeah
1: um and if, you, and if the viewers are wondering why my face i started making really funny faces that just the sky opened up apparently <laughs> over our heads in terms of like the weather outside yeah so, it sounds like there's a huge like the tornadoes had. no so. those
0: are squirrels oh, <laughs> is that what that it's, is? those are squirrels running across our our tin roof yeah, yeah. oh that's and amazing they're, they're very large oh they are oh, clearly yeah. okay
1: <laughs> So um, yeah, the chapter on COVID uh, there, we we talk about um, this unscholarly certainty, you know, that um, badly eroded people's faith in uh, expertise and science um, in the name of being very confident and sure about science, which is an anti-scientific attitude to begin with. Uh, You know, I always refer to science as being the systematic application of doubt (laughs) over and over and over again. And this is one of the most, it's the reason why we have trust in the subtitle of Canceling of the American Mind is because it's one of our biggest and most important points. Even if you think you're never going to get canceled, which we we, we largely um, define as being basically censored or expelled or fired for, for your free speech, um, the uh, even if you don't think you're ever going to be, you're still harmed by cancel culture, particularly when it's applied in knowledge-producing industries, because it leads to a situation where People aren't stupid, they're, they're, they're looking to the people who claim to be experts, and then they see that someone is actually getting in trouble for having the wrong opinion, they're never going to trust you again. Because if someone dissenting is immediately cancelled, that means it's kind of like, so it sounds like there's only one answer that's acceptable here. And if that happened once, that would be bad. Um, for trust and expertise, but we talk about more than a thousand examples of professors being targeted for cancellation, and you know, numbers unlike we've seen, you know, in in fire's existence. And of course, it's devastating to trust and expertise. But to put some meat on the bones, like um, there's the Jennifer Say example, um, you know, and, and this is a case where. Uh, Jennifer Say, she was a Levi's executive. I think she was like fourth in line um, at, at Levi's. She uh, had a you know a history of actually really the,
0: really the heir apparent.
1: Yeah, yeah. And she she was fighting on behalf of of uh, education and and for kids. Mm-hmm. And then when the lockdown started, and when they said that they were, that the classrooms would be locked down as well, uh, she very quickly correctly came out and said, "This is going to be really harmful to kids, by the way, and it's particularly going to harm the most vulnerable kids the most. This is going to be the most damaging to poor and minority kids, the ones that we claim to care about the most." And she was immediately called, you know, racist for this, like really, like claims that like didn't even begin to make sense about, like basically they sort of threw the book at her in terms of like, the rhetorical book.
0: I feel like there's a go-to list of, of, of yes. pejoratives that you throw at someone that, yeah. that breaks the rules. RACIST,
1: TRANSPHOBIC, why not? Yeah. You know, like, f- figure out some way to, to, to make the person feel as bad as possible. I mean, lately it's kind of like, oh, you're supporting genocide, which yeah. I think actually might have been an argument that, that, that was made against her. Um, and it, so she was forced out um, at Levi's. To, um, thankfully, she didn't actually take um, the, the severance deal that would have required her not to talk about it. And she's written a lot about it. Now, I always want to be clear here. Even if Jennifer Say had been wrong, what happened to her was still wrong. It is especially galling, though, that she said something so obviously correct that now all the experts are like, oh yeah, actually, this is devastating to, you know, particularly poor and minority kids and to the kids who didn't get an education for a couple of years that was in person. It makes it all the more galling, but also this was devastating to, to, to trust and expertise because the experts were like, were acting like, well, there's no way lockdowns could be harmful to kids. And, and everyone looking at this, and like, you don't know that. We know you don't know that. Um, and it doesn't sound right either, but you're acting with such absolute certainty. Um, why should I ever trust you again?
0: In that particular case, it was sort of common sense wrong. Yeah, and and I think a lot of people knew that one. Yeah, she's Jennifer's been on the show several times talking about this. Oh, stuff. very nice. I didn't know that. And uh, she's uh, she's one of uh, many people that I met during lockdowns who had sort of uh, uh, an eye opening moment where you know they they thought they were on the left. Yeah, and then the left became so authoritarian and are like, what happened to the civil libertarian left? And I. I would ask the same question but they're they're almost politically homeless now. Yeah. Because because going back to those 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 fabulous days where free speech was a was a pillar that we could all agree on. Yeah. That's gone. And it and me. like it, it feels like all of this, this 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 the you know the last 20 30 years building up to this moment and in a lot of ways the lockdowns were sort of a test case yeah. on on yeah. whether or not there was some sort of sciencey way to dictate what was true and what was not, what was allowed speech, what was not allowed speech, yeah. and and when I was talking to Jay Bhattacharya, he was talking about this this so-called think tank at Stanford yeah. that that was actually pretending like they could monitor. What was true and what was malinformation and misinformation? I don't even know what these words mean, but it, yeah. it means whatever they they want it to mean. Ma- I suspect.
1: malinformation is a particularly this is kind of like what not particularly good information. I mean, watching people actually make the argument that I think malinformation is it's true but it's deceptive, which basically means that you're sure this incident happened, but you're covering it, makes it seem like this happens a lot, and it's like wow, this is. You know, we talk about, uh, in in Canceling the American Mind, the idea of the perfect rhetorical fortress on the left. The idea of this system of never having to seriously address your opponent's arguments and ways to avoid actually having the debate in the first place. And we call it perfect because there's no way to defeat it. And when it comes to misinformation, malinformation, it's so perfectly, you know, vague and broad um, that it can be whatever you want. And meanwhile, like it I, I it kind of blows me away that I, that from people who i feel like should know better one of the first things they ask me time and time again is still it's kind of like well i mean is there free speech for misinformation and i'm like I think you're under the impression that the truth is far easier to know than it actually is. Yeah, like that's the birth, the birth of small L liberalism. That's the birth mm-hmm. of the scientific revolution. I, I always love the, you know, the. Um, I, I don't know who originally said this, but the Enlightenment should be called the discovery of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that essentially, like, really, the Enlightenment was like, wow, we thought we knew a lot of stuff, but then we started testing it, and it turns out, wow, we're wrong about everything. Um, and that's an amazing, that is, to a degree, what what, what the scientific revolution really, really was. Um, and this is just completely reversing it. it and the idea, and of course, the most horrifying idea of all. let's put government in charge of being the final arbiter of truth. Um, that's, that, that, and how recently this stuff has been tried, um, it, it is something that a whole generation isn't even hearing about. Like how, how much you, like, how much we took for granted that, yeah, you knew stories about how badly things turned out in the Soviet Union, or under Mao, for that matter, or under any of these totalitarian uh, systems, including, you know, Nazism and fascism, and the answer is, no, they haven't. I actually heard those stories.
0: If you have made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibi on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So I, I have sort of a good news, bad news version of this story because I'd love some good news. And the, the good news is, is that um, speech and freedom of thought and the right to pursue knowledge has been radically democratized with the birth of these, these uh, technology platforms, yes. social media and I, I was one of those. those
1: techno optimists?
0: Yeah, I was, I was a gauzy believer in, in that the wisdom of crowds and that we would figure this stuff out. And in a lot of ways, I, I, I still cling to that idea and I think a lot of this cancel culture stuff is really a product of, of all of this freedom. Like we're being exposed to a lot of opinions that we didn't know we had before yeah. and we're also being exposed to the ability to express our opinions unchecked, yes. most mostly uncensored, or at least at, at one point. And, and I think the, the the pushback, like this insane um, multi-agency federal government censorship apparatus is, is a wild overreaction to the fact that people are finding out for themselves. Yeah, So I, in that sense, I see it as a very good thing because, because they're desperate, they're overwrought, Um, and thanks to Elon Musk and and many FOIA requests, probably some of the litigation you guys have done, we know just how pervasive this government censorship was. Um, But I saw you argue, I think during the Hoover conversation, that it also goes back to this philosophical shift Mm -hmm. that that comes from, uh, again, I would call it sort of a scientism thing where we're good, they're bad, (laughs) we're right because the science is behind us, they're wrong, Therefore, and you, you saw this, even some Penn professor wrote an op-ed a couple of days ago where she said, we have too much free speech, yeah. we have too much uh, um, tolerance, and, and we need to reimpose order from the top down. She didn't say it exactly that way, but that's what she meant.
1: That's what she meant, yeah. And that's been the argument you know, of, of Marcuse on up. Um, that's the anti-free speech movement. And the irony of, because uh, basically what that movement wanted was to delink, uh, campus policies from the First Amendment. They want it both at public and and, uh, and, and private ca- campuses as well. If there's a way to do that, and they want to be the guardian class. They want to be the ones in charge of decide of, of, of um, deciding what's true and and what's not.
0: Presiding in the temple of Newton, perhaps. Yeah,
1: yeah well, exactly. Um, and the idea that we could actually end up in a situation in which conservatives might have actually helped um, get l- let the um, anti free speech left get everything they ever dreamed of is a, a kind of predictable irony that like th- these kind of patterns repeat a lot is that people think that they're doing something in their self-interest but they don't realize that what they're asking for is power to have more power yeah um and that's not going to work out the way you think it's going to work out and this is something that you know uh, that we have to it's, civil libertarians have to repeat over and over again um and people are suckers for it you know all all the time and you you, you made me think of something that i always I still have a little bit of a techno-optimist in me, and and here's why. And uh, when I was studying First Amendment, um, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty, um, because, you know, that's how much of a nerd I am about this stuff, Uh, when I ran out of of classes at Stanford on on First Amendment. And I studied that um, because I wanted, I was very interested in um, in technology and about how the printing press was the original disruptive technology. And people need to remember that, you know, when Henry VIII started regulating it in 1521 and 1538 and Elizabeth did the same thing, that they were dealing with a technology that they they surely were like, well, this wasn't worth it. You know, like, sure, we get to get newspapers out a little bit easier and, and you know, our, our proclamations, but overall it led to the increase in the witch trials, it de- de- destabilized society, it led to religious wars, it's been an incredibly bloody infernal device. Um, and that's just if you introduce several million people into a, uh, in, into a debate. Um, whereas we just introduced billion, billions more people into a global debate and so uh, by, by having social media. I mean, people, they, they, they've gotten so used to it. They, 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 the, the idea that practically every person on the planet can actually participate in an argument kind of like whenever they want and tell the world what they think kind of whenever they want. There's nothing vaguely resembling this. And right now, uh, so did, did, the, did the printing press stay that infernal technology? No, over time it actually became something that society adjusted to. We figured out better ways to use it, and suddenly we have all these eyes to disconfirm things. And so it actually became sort of crowdsourcing knowledge, and turns out that works a hell of a lot better than relying on Aristotle and some monks to interpret them. Um, and social media, I think, does actually have the potential if used in a, in a more disciplined kind of way to actually have those extra eyes on problems and to solve things faster and certainly better than I think in some ways they are in some of our academic departments in, in higher ed. But we haven't uh, figured out a, you know, a truth stream within social media that actually uh, can work. But I still have faith that we can develop something that could actually turn this unprecedented level of, of, of cross communication into a boon, not just for expression, but also for production of knowledge.
0: I used to point to Wikipedia as a sterling example yeah. of this, but now it's become sort of a dumpster fire of wokeism. But I think um, you know we could pick on the mistakes that Elon Musk has made all day, but yeah. community notes are a noble attempt at crowdsourcing critiques of, of opinions. Um, most that I've read, I've, I don't study community notes that much, but. Yeah. But they' but they're they're credible sources and citations, and at very least you get two versions, yeah of what might be the truth. And, and maybe that's the best we can get is, is to get these, these different opinions and, and sort it out for ourselves. But yeah, I would, I would think we're in the middle of something. and even going back to the, to the, the sort of uh, um, taking over a town hall meeting, yeah, this was before these technologies. Yeah. And if you combine sort of uh, the, the logic, mm-hmm of driving the conversation at a town hall meeting, add a little bit of cynical, um, destructive Saul in there. You get some of these these bot mobs that go after people for, for woke transgressions. But I'm noticing more and more people who might have been canceled before now like, you know, that, that is not representative of reality. Yeah. These are not real people. This is at best a, a fringe opinion of, of what the public thinks. So I'm just going to ignore that and and work through it and and maybe even fight back.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are adapting to some of the uh, aspects of technology um, that actually, you know, we think are harmful or destructive. And and we have to because one of the impulses, of course, is, you know, is to completely regulate the stuff from the top and put the genie back in the bottle. You can't do that. It's not going to work anyway. It's going to create all sorts of additional um, distortions, and people start adapting uh, to technology. For example, like people realizing that one of the things that probably is contributing to how social media and, and phones actually um, interfere with uh, teenage happiness is the, the simplest answer to some, in some cases, is that it interferes with sleep. And just that realization it, um, it has, you know, has helpful and productive um, implications as well. And that's something that, you know, you can solve on an individual basis. I also have no problem with schools, for example, saying that, you know, in K-12, through 12, in the beginning of the school day, you know, you check your phone, you know, um, in between meetings to make sure that it classes, that's fine, but otherwise you don't have it. I think that's actually pretty sensible way of, of dealing with it that doesn't require incredibly heavy-handed regulation or, 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 or shutting down companies.
0: So what is, um, I know I know you love this question um, because I've watched you try to answer it before, but what is what is the solution, we'll, we'll start with on campus, but I feel like mm-hmm. campus in, in a lot of ways is a microcosm sure. for whether or not um, America will still be a place where free speech is, is protected and, and celebrated because um, we're, we're, it feels like we're losing right now. Yeah,
1: no, no. I, I believe me. I, I, I understand that. Um, when it comes to, you know, particularly since we're talking to a more libertarian audience, um, I think you know, market pressure is, is a big way to go. Um, the campus free speech ranking that we do, um, you know, which is uh, uh, something that I feel very strongly about because I always wanted to bring more social science into Give
0: Give people a little bit more on that because it's such an important tool.
1: Thank you. Yeah, um, so it's something that we started doing, started experimenting with back in 2019. Coddling was a little bit of a proof of theory that essentially um, FIREC and and other civil libertarians could benefit from having more social science incorporated into what we do. And that allowed for us to expand our research department, get you know real hot shots, real, real great people like... Um, Sean Stevens, Comey, Comey Frey o- over to FIRE and start doing, uh, doing high-level research on, um, on whether or not environments really are good, for, uh, where c- certain colleges are good for free speech. So we've reached a point and we try to improve the free speech ranking every year. And this year it's the largest study of student opinion on how they're, what the free speech environment is like at 248 schools, actually I think 260. Um, and the largest database of professor cancellations, student cancellations, uh, uh, speech codes, and deplatforming, and we put those together. We compare. Uh, we compare them. We create thirteen different scores, and then we figure out like what schools actually are good on free speech and which aren't as I said, Harvard, finished dead last, Penn second to last. University of Chicago, 13, 13 which is pretty good. They, they did mess up one case, which is one of the reasons they, they've previously been number one in the past. Um, uh, University of Virginia, uh, finished in the top 10. Um, no Ivy League school, did well. Stanford, of course, didn't do well. Even MIT, you know, finished in the bottom half. Um, But this will hopefully um, help inform where you send your kids to because, you know, voting with your feet, voting with your checkbook, you know, can make a big difference uh, here. And as far as like a libertarian agenda for this, I think step one in reform is getting you know finding a group finding some scholars maybe maybe this can be a Cato project or something like that to try to remove as many impediments as possible to smaller cheaper more rigorous alternatives to both K through 12 and higher education I know that there's some work's been done there I think there needs to be 20 hundred times you know more uh, of that because I think a lot about uh, cheaper smarter ways to um, to actually be able to signal that you are Hardworking, conscientious, disciplined, and actually read the material. Because right now, you know, I, I pick on Harvard, rightfully so, because you know, 45% of white students at Harvard they're either uh, athletes, legacy admits, or kids of professors. And the average GPA at Harvard is 3.9, um, and, uh, which is basically which is basically perfect. Um, and uh, and and that employers are telling us that you know these um, elite school graduates are showing up and. Uh, harming some of their institutions because they, you know, can't work with people they disagree with. They want um, the, uh, the the corporation to take on whatever their political point of view is as, as, as its own political point of view. So th- the elite colleges are not producing the kind of product that they used to that can be reliably excellent thinker, um, innovative a person. And that creates a huge opportunity for smaller, cheaper, smarter models to actually start um, uh start being the ones that signal hire these these folks. And I tried to put my money where my, where my mouth is because Ricky Schlott, my co-author in the book, is someone who dropped out of NYU when it uh, you know became uh, $70,000 a year at COVID Zoom school, which she thought was just ridiculous. Um, and I actually got rid of the requirement at fire that we you have to have a bachelor's to work there because I didn't even realize we had that. Um, and I think a lot more employers should be uh, should be dumping that. I
0: mean, clearly, um, I can just speak to free people, but the more degrees my team has, and I'm talking about someone in this room right now, <laughs> it's it is diminishing returns on investment. Yeah. Um, no, no offense, Logan. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's funny because again, like one of the one of the upsides of, of lockdowns was so many parents sort of realizing, yeah, um, certainly K twelve, but also, um, you know. Seventy thousand dollars a year for Zoom School, yeah, and then you start to look at the the curriculum, and you're like, "Wow, this is this is actually garbage." Yeah, um, so it's it's another way that 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 parents can vote with their feet. the The final question I have is is not a question at all. I would love for you to shamelessly flack. Where we find your new book, where we can find out more about fire and and what what we as citizens can be doing.
1: I really appreciate that because right now, you know, a lot of people are besmirching the good name of freedom of speech, left and right. You know, there are there are attacks on it. Um, definitely, it's being misrepresented a lot in the media, as if. Um, it, it doesn't ex- it explains free speech without any amount of nuance when it is actually, you know, like I said, the eternally radical idea. It, 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 it is, we owe so much of civilization to freedom of speech and free, free inquiry. So we need all the help we can get. Um, so we're the fire.org, you know, we, ju- we just expanded last year to be the foundation for individual rights and expression, as you mentioned, um, you know, we raised $55 million towards $75 million in order to, um, you know, try to bring in a bipartisan, you know, free speech, army of of a million people, and we're already at 800,000 people, by the way, and we have almost as many people on the left as we have people on the right. Now, to be clear, the people who are really great on free speech tend to be a little bit older um, on the left, but we'll, we need them, because we, this has to be... Hippies know, like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it needs to be that, that, that kind of coalition, so please support FIRE, check out, we're producing some great content as well, some actually, you know, some really funny stuff as well. Canceling the American Mind is available everywhere books are sold, um, and uh, you know, we had the misfortune of it coming out right right in the middle of the, of the, of the horrible uh, attacks, but people are starting to realize that it points out a way of arguing that we can simply abandon, a BS uh, uh, way of, of, of argue, winning arguments without winning arguments, and so that's available everywhere. And coddling of the American mind, you know, our prediction that essentially the same habits that would be bad for free speech are going to be disastrous for mental health um, has proved more true than even John and I are comfortable with, um, but we still think that we're still extremely proud of, of, of that, and we hope people check it out.
0: Well, thank you. This has been helpful. Thank you. Thanks for watching, if you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you wanna know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.